Welcome, listeners, to the Everlasting Stories podcast, presented by Sick Semper Serpent Books in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm your host, Michael Strand. And tonight, I am very pleased to present to you the third episode in the Luke Miller saga, this one titled Luke Miller and the Belligerent Bigfoot by D. Zane Davis. Well, listeners, let me refresh your memory. In the last episode, Luke Miller and company saved the city from a horrifying monster that would have torn absolutely everyone into tiny, bloody pieces. And it was a good thing he did, too. But at this point, boy, is he tired. Luke and Dahlia, in this episode, are going to go camping and encounter some new friends that uh, you might not expect. I can't wait to read it for you. However, before I do read tonight's story, I must inform you that Six Semper Serpent is releasing a brand new book, The Adventures of Israel St. James, by Everlasting Stories author Nathaniel Hicklin. It is a beautiful book, lovingly illustrated by Jason Belden and edited by yours truly. We're very proud of it. We've been working on it almost seven years, and it's finally done. Head on over to SickSemperSerpent.com to reserve yourself a copy. And if you support us on Patreon at the $9 a month and up level, you will be getting a early copy signed in the mail very soon. So keep your peepers peeled for that. And speaking of Patreon, if you like this podcast, you can get early access to new episodes at the $3 a month level, and you can read the entire archive at the $1 a month level. Well, listener, you might be asking yourself, what's the book about? And I'll tell you very briefly. It follows someone named Israel St. James, who is marked with the ability to understand the innate magical nature of uh, relics which are created at crucial points in history. He is also gifted with immortality, and so for hundreds of years, he travels through some of the most remarkable events of uh, human history, collecting these magical relics to keep them safe. And that's what the book is about. Along the way, he meets allies and friends, terrifying nemeses, and even people out of history, such as Nikola Tesla, his mentor. Um, It's a really fun book, and uh, I hope that you will check it out. And if you do, leave a review. It really helps us out. And thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who made it possible. I know you're here for this story, and uh, I'm going to read it starting right now. This is Luke Miller and the Belligerent Bigfoot by D. Zane Davis. Enjoy. 
Here we are, Dr. Dahlia Harriet announced as her black Beta Romero bounced to the end of the rutted, overgrown fire road. Detective Luke Miller absorbed their surroundings. A single-story log cabin inhabited the clearing before them, its cedar-shingled roof carpeted in a heavy jacket of collard-colored lichen. The age-wavered window panes still managed to glint in the afternoon sun, despite a thick coat of dust. Lurking at the edge of the campsite, evergreen trees wove an impenetrable forest curtain. When the burble of the Beta Romero's exhaust ceased, the only sound that remained was the distant twitter of warblers. Isn't it splendid? The doctor flashed her cerulean irises Luke's way. Uh, It's certainly rustic, the detective replied, not entirely displeased. Oh, come now, Luke, she chided. Few days off the grid will do us both some good. Off the electrical grid, sure, Luke groaned as they climbed into the hot, still August air of Minnesota's Misabi Range. But indoor plumbing never did me any harm. Dr. Harriet chuckled as she pulled her shoulder-length raven hair into a tidy bun. The ethereal peal of her laughter reminded Luke that his companion wasn't just an affluent archaeologist. She was the incarnation of Freya, goddess of love, beauty, and war. This vacation had been her idea, a chance to unplug after Grendel's grandmother and unspeakable horror from the underworld had nearly killed them both. A few butterflies of excitement and anxiety tickled Luke's stomach as he pondered just how intimately the goddess wanted to get acquainted. The SUV took a while to unload, not due to Luke's single duffel, but because Freya apparently had packed for a year in the Amazon. God, what could this possibly be? Luke wheezed, dragging her last and largest suitcase into the cabin. My bed, Freya pronounced. Bed? Luke interjected, pointing towards the four limp, stained mattresses on decrepit bunks on either side of the room. What about those? Oh, those will hardly grant any comfort or privacy, she resolved, unzipping the case and initiating an electric whirring which emanated from within. If that's your bed, then what is this? Luke gestured at another laden bag a solar-powered, rainwater-collecting portable bidet with temperature-controlled seats, she stated, matter-of-factly, as her inflating air mattress began to emerge from its hangar. And I thought we were roughing it, Luke pronounced, amazed. I'm a goddess, Freya chirped. I never rough it. Now, it's nearly four. Why don't we start dinner? Luke nodded and reached for the plastivalet tub of food, but she shook her head and gestured towards the door. Over the next three hours, Freya schooled Luke in the arts of trapping, skinning, and deboning small game, as well as in foraging for wild mushrooms and herbs. By seven o'clock, their efforts had borne a delicious snowshoe hare stew. Dinner would have been done an hour earlier had Shelby, Luke's shaggy but intelligent mutt, not barked and scared off the first hare. Freya, however, took the opportunity to teach the dog how to drive prey towards a trap. Like her owner, Shelby was a quick learner and was rewarded for her help with a smorgasbord of scraps. As dinner settled in their stomachs and the sun settled in the horizon, 
Luke and Freya took turns throwing Shelby's ball and watching the stars ignite in the inky sky. There's so little light pollution, Dahlia marveled. You can practically reach out and touch the constellations. Luke, do you know the Saxon or Norse names for the stars? I hardly know the Greek ones, he admitted. You see those two there? She pointed to a pair of spangles at the crux of Gemini. Luke nodded. The Greeks call those Castor and Pollux. Her tone seemed to echo backwards into time and space. But to the people of the North, their Theasi's eyes. Luke reclined next to her as she explained. The frost giant, Theasi, demigod of storms, coveted Iduna, the goddess of Jovanescence. To possess her and her apples of everlasting youth, he took the form of an eagle and captured the shape-shifting trickster, Loki. Thiasi imprisoned Loki until the latter agreed to persuade Iduna to leave the impenetrable city of Asgard with a bushel of her sacred apples. When Loki complied, Thiasi kidnapped the goddess, but Iduna refused to let him eat even one of the sacred fruit. Meanwhile, the gods discovered the kidnapping and ordered Loki to get Iduna back immediately. They lent him Freya's falcon feather cloak, which grants its wearer the power of flight. Loki flew back to where Iduna was held, changed her into a swallow, and carried her back to Asgard with Thiassi in hot pursuit. When the gods saw them coming, they lit a fire that incinerated Thiassi's feathers, and he crashed to the ground before them, and the gods killed him with their wrath. Thereafter, they placed Thiassi's eyes in the heavens as a memorial to the demigod and as a warning to all who might cross them. Wait, so when you say Freya's falcon feather cloak, he began curiously. It's getting late, Freya interrupted, with a cheeky smile just visible by the fading starlight. We should save the rest of the story for tomorrow morning's hike. She rose from her position next to him. You're welcome to stay up as late as you like, Luke. You won't bother me. The curtains on my canopy bed are quite opaque and soundproof. Yeah, might stay here and take in Thiasi's eyes a little longer, Luke replied. He might have said more, but Freya's kiss on his forehead left his tongue numb. As she slipped inside the cabin, Shelby followed, keen to snag a post as the goddess's foot warmer. These latest seismic readings don't make any sense, the scientist muttered in frustration as she studied a computer printout dense with tables and graphs. We're miles from any fault lines. Could it be a a pocket of natural gas? A short male scientist squeaked, snatching the papers and removing his glasses to squint at the report. We checked that, too, a taller male scientist interjected, stroking his bristly mustache. There's no natural gas or oil anywhere nearby. Well, what about water? The first suggested, gesturing with her thin fingers. Nope, nope, the other two replied, almost in unison. What's the problem? 
A brick shed of a man barked as he strode into the laboratory. His fitted black suit contrasted sharply with the white lab coats of the other three. It's a sudden wave of seismic activity, Mr. Duncan, the first scientist answered. It doesn't conform to any known pattern, the second added. Hang on, Duncan interrupted. What kind of seismic activity? Um, microquakes, the third scientist answered, but we're nowhere near the geologic features that would cause them. Yeah, well, what's the worst-case scenario? Duncan inquired, combing his salt-and-peppered hair with a paw. Could be anything, the second scientist answered after a moment. Earthquake, sinkholes, distant explosions... Without any visible change in demeanor, Duncan abruptly turned and approached a phone hidden among the panoply of glowing screens, dials, gauges, and buttons that constituted the nearest wall. He dialed extension six, muttered four inaudible words, hung it up, and turned to face the scientist, his countenance a block of stone. Lady and gentlemen, for the past twenty years... The friendly ferrite company has fought tree-huggers, politicians, labor unions, government regulators, and industry competitors to open the first deep-shaft taconite mine in a century. We sold the government and people of Minnesota on a prosperous and safe facility. And you know, as well as I do, that even the slightest environmental hiccup could shut the whole thing down. You called Rich? A sweaty, balding man in an ill-fitting gray suit bustled into the lab, interrupting the scientist's reports. Yeah, Mac, he glared at his entourage of scientists. Suspend operations and put security on red alert. We've got a seismic problem that friendly ferrets top three geologists here don't know how to solve. And if anybody gets hurt, or worse... If any bad press gets out, you three can kiss your careers goodbye. The little man nodded and then jogged out. We just need more time, the second scientist squeaked. How much time? Rich growled. The geologists studied each other's faces indecisively. Before they could muster an answer, Mac re-entered. All done, boss, he began in a huff catching his breath, and continued, And uh, as for this problem, do you uh, need another expert? The geologists spun on their heels to glare at him. I thought three was enough, Rich moaned. But uh, you got someone better? Um, yeah, maybe. Is he a geologist? Among other things. How renaissance man, huh? Rich's skepticism was heavy, but the socioeconomic pressures on his shoulders were even heavier. Is he discreet? Oh, yeah, naturally. <clears throat> All right, fine, Rich resolved. Bring him in. Meanwhile, you three yahoos get downstairs and start gathering more data. by the embers of their campfire, dreaming of Freya. His mind beheld her, carrying him up a translucent stairway to Asgard. Or was it Valhalla? 
He struggled to keep straight the labyrinth of mythological realms. He turned his head to ask the goddess, but a cloud smacked him squarely in the face. He awoke in blackness, but the sensation of movement persisted. Consciousness, trickling back, confirmed he was indeed being carried. As his eyes adjusted, pinpricks of tree-filtered moonlight revealed he was in the forest. Freya must have possessed the physical strength of a god to match her intelligence and beauty. He looked up sleepily. What he saw shocked him awake. He was not in the arms of Freya at all. All he could discern was an enormous, hairy mass. He drew breath to scream, but his consciousness went dark. When Luke awoke again, the waxing moon made the world appear as a shadowy inversion, almost like a photographic negative. As his eyes focused, he realized he was sitting in a sunken clearing formed by the mouth of a shallow cave. Around him, immense boulders formed amphitheater-like steps, which descended down into the grotto from the seemingly impenetrable line of evergreens above. The cavern must have been the product of an Anne's old cave-in, and it ended in a tumbling wall of jigsaw jagged rock. All around, nature's stonework was grouted with thick lichen and draped with scrubby junipers. Then, a moss-coated boulder in the cave stood up, revealing that it was actually an immense creature. Gray eyes glowed in the darkness. Luke shuddered, recalling Grendel's beastly kin. The monster stepped out of the shadows, and Luke beheld an eight-foot Sasquatch covered in thick fur. Beneath its shining eyes, broad ape-like nostrils flared. Its mouth opened, revealing massive human-like teeth with vampiric canines. The detective braced himself for the end. Sorry to startle you, Luke. It sounded in a warm, soft voice. My name is Brona, and I've brought you here because we need your help. Um, uh, Bigfoot needs my, my, my help? Luke stammered, recovering from his shock. My name is Brona, Brona answered with a hint of irritation. I addressed you by Luke and not skinny legs. Besides, I'll have you know that my feet are perfectly proportional to my height. She held up a furry foot, whose size would have measured well into the thirties had anyone attempted to shoe it. Oh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry, uh, Brona, Luke corrected himself. This wasn't his first encounter with a magical being, and so his experience as a detective of the supernatural kept him cool under pressure. Plus, he imagined that if Bigfoot wanted him dead, he'd be dead. I, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm just wondering, who is we? And uh, what help could someone like myself possibly provide to someone like you know, yourself? <laughs> we are the Elder Council of the Vatiao, a deep voice bellowed from behind. Luke turned to behold four more creatures like Brona silently enter the grotto and take positions on either side of her. The same voice, attached to the shortest but widest Bigfoot, answered the question in Luke's expression. Vatia are nature spirits, guardians of the physical world. 
We have many incarnations and many names throughout the world. Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, Alma, Orin, Patak, and so on. The Ojibwe called us Sabe, and the council before you leads all Retia who dwell in the temperate continental forests of North America. As for the help, the skinniest but fluffiest Bigfoot began in a voice as high and thin as she was, we hear that you, Luke Miller, are a great warrior, a slayer of monsters, and a leader of men. You slew the ghostly Professor Lambert and the ghastly Grendel's grandmother, Brona added. Such prowess may now be our only hope. Luke wondered how they knew about his past cases. Were Bigfoot spies following him? He pushed the idea from his mind. Um, so we're dealing with a monster, Luke asked, not wanting to know the answer. Indeed, the tallest vatier with the dark fur replied in a raspy tone. Dragotch, the dragon. Oh, dragon, huh? Luke replied, failing to cover anxiety with faux arrogance. Well, you know, after Grendel's grandma, how bad could a dragon be? The fell beast you killed could have terrorized the world, said a new voice, not belonging to a Bigfoot. Dragotch will surely end it. Luke searched the clearing for the speaker, his eyes finally landing on an ancient tortoise, nearly invisible, sitting among the rocks. This is Mishike, Brona introduced. She has lived in these woods since the dawn of time. As our historian, she is best suited to tell the tale. Lay it on me, Luke replied with an exasperated sigh. He realized his tone may have been a bit disrespectful and added a hasty, Um, <clears throat> your honor. The tortoise seemed unfazed. She simply blinked and began her tale in an aged and dignified voice. When last seen, Dragotch was a thirty-foot-tall, sixty-foot-long nightmare covered in scales of scarlet and gold. His front limbs are bat-like wings with fearsome talons, and his powerful legs end in spike-like claws. His snout is like a crocodile's, but with larger teeth and enormous shimmering green eyes. His tail adds another forty feet of Bony whip crowned with razor's sharp spikes. He and his twin, Dagwin, were spawned in the cursed European wilderness long, long before the coming of men. They roamed there for untold millennia, preying upon beasts and your primitive ancestors. And then the Celts discovered iron, a metal, hard and sharp enough to pierce the soft scales of growing dragons who have just shed their skins. Indeed, 
Sigurd's iron sword slew Dagwin around two centuries before the Roman conquest of Europe. Fearing Sigurd, or a warrior like him, Dragoch fled across the ocean, eventually finding refuge in these lands. Unlike the Celts, the Hopewell Native Americans had not discovered iron, so Dragoch was invulnerable to even their strongest warriors. Over the next thousand years, he grew larger and more powerful than any dragon before or since, slaughtering and stealing with impunity. Then, in the year 1170, Madoc landed in North America, fleeing the civil war in his native Gwynedd. Upon his arrival, the fabled Welsh traveler heard tales of a monster west of the Great Lakes. He journeyed here and lent his iron weapons to the Hopewells. These weapons, in concert with their most powerful magic, helped the Native Americans finally banish Dragoch beneath the earth. Many Europeans presumptuously claim that the Mardok slew the dragon himself. The Swedish-sounding accent of a vatir with wiry hair interjected cynically. In reality, he only lent weapons to the Hopewell warriors. Mardok was a great explorer, but a poor soldier. Mm, yes, indeed, Mishike agreed. So, for nearly a thousand years, Dragoch has slumbered beneath the earth, and it might have done so for eternity. <clears throat> if it weren't for the deeds of men, Brona continued. Ironically, when a new iron mine opened this last year, its machinery able to dig deeper than ever before, their excavation disturbed the dragon, Luke realized all at once. His hosts nodded solemnly. Okay. The detective continued, reasoning through the facts. But why bring me into it? You're twice my size and no doubt masters of magic. Can't you just conjure up some, you know, iron weapons? Unfortunately, no, Brona said. After going unchallenged for a millennium, iron could only wound Dragoch when he was last defeated. And since then, Mishike continued, he has grown stronger. You see, death and destruction give him power. Maliciousness and pain give him succor and strength. The havoc wrought by a twentieth century of war and environmental destruction have increased his power and potency a hundredfold. His tomb is now less a prison and more a mother's womb. And, Brona added, this same environmental destruction has turned many Vatir against humanity and their fellow sprites, twisting and transforming their spirits to evil. We call these demons skookums. They believe humans deserve doom for their disregard of nature's beauty 
and they will aid the dragon to bring about the apocalypse. Even many Vatia who are not Skookums cannot be called upon to fight, the tallest elder continued. We are immortal beings. The death of this world will not be ours. Many of us have little faith in humanity, so many are content to let fate run its course. Without strength and numbers, even the combined magic and physical prowess of the Council and those loyal to it will not be enough to defeat the dragon foe. Unless, Brona spoke, her eyes stabbing into Luke's, the wayward Vatir's faith can be restored by a noble human warrior, one whose courage shows there's good yet left in humanity, one whose strength and purity of heart will inspire them to fight both the dragon and the skookums. That is where you come in, Luke gulped. Oh, is that all? Shouting his name you should try, Shelby the dog suggested telepathically as she and Freya tracked Brona's footsteps through the woods. It won't do any good, the goddess replied to the panting mutt. I'm sure the Vetia used a sleeping spell. Even if he's awake, they won't let him go until they're done with him. We worry? the dog asked, the chocolate orbs of her eyes certainly looking worried. Well, it depends, Freya replied. Most Vatia are benevolent. Even the malevolent ones wouldn't dare kidnap someone under my protection unless... <gasps> I something find! I something find! Shelby interrupted, snuffling at a tree trunk and barking a little in spite of herself. I find! I find! <laughs> something! Freya's headlamp revealed a square, camouflage, plastic box strapped to the sappy trunk. It's one of those motion-activated wildlife cameras, the goddess determined. Some hunter or cryptozoologist must have left it here to count moose or Bigfoot. Mm. Let's keep moving. I think we're catching up. Ah, uh, yeah, we've got a security breach in Sector 9, Mr. Burnham the security intern announced over the phone. Camera shows a woman and her dog. Copy that, Mac replied. Send in Mostat. Stat. Um, sir? The mobile security threat assessment team, Mac clarified with an impatient sigh. Bring her in if she's still on company property. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> Sorry. It's only my second day. Yeah, whatever. Mac hung up as Rich Duncan entered his office and addressed the man who had been silently waiting next to Mac. Sorry to keep you waiting. I wasn't expecting you till the morning, but I appreciate you coming in so soon, Mr. Dr. Gerard DeVoe, replied the mid-Atlantic accent of a stooped elderly man in a gray mouse suit. His bulbous nose and spherical bald head made him look like he should be hunting rabbits in a 1940s cartoon. His appearance revived Rich's skepticism. Um, excuse me, Rich apologized for clarifying. A uh, doctor of geology? 
Mac fidgeted as Dr. Delvaux replied, a doctor of divination and parapsychology. Mac withered under Rich's derisive gaze as the latter replied, Oh, I see. Well, I'm sorry to bring you all the way out here at 4 a.m. for nothing, Dr. Delvaux, but I don't think your, uh, expertise is appropriate for our problem. Mr. Burnham will show you out. He would have turned around to leave had Dr. Delvaux not asked with a smirk, Are the microquakes always accompanied by infrasounds? A moment passed while the question sprouted in Rich's mind. Who told you about the infrasounds? He finally began dumbly. My geologists, they just told me this morning, and I better be the only one that they told. You are the third to know, actually, Delvo corrected. I am the first. Your scientists are the second, and now you know. Have they also observed any infrared pulsations? Is this some sort of joke? Rich argued, partially regaining his incredulity. You're no expert. You're just some con man, probably a corporate spy who knows a few highfalutin science terms as part of your act. If your team has observed infrared pulsations, Delvo interrupted calmly, you can't afford to take that chance. Rich opened his mouth, paused, and then closed it. He picked up the phone on Mac's disaster of a desktop and dialed extension three. Hi, Sarah. Has the team observed anything called an infrared pulsation? From the tiny speaker in the airpiece, Mac and Delvaux could discern an elevated pitch in the geologist's answer. All right, I see, Rich replied solemnly. He replaced the receiver, his eyes regarding Delvaux suspiciously. Mac... Get the doctor a hard hat and take him down to mine shaft E. Well, Brona pressed a long, quiet Luke. What say you, Luke Miller, slayer of monsters, consort to Freya? Luke looked up remembering when Freya had said he was fit to be the consort of a goddess and wondering if it was some sort of ethereal face-space relationship status that all of these supernatural beings were somehow aware of. Do I have a choice? he asked warily. Of course, the tall, fluffy Bigfoot replied with friendly frankness. If you refuse, Brona will return you to Freya to enjoy whatever time you have left with your friends and family before Dragoch annihilates the earth. Luke thought of his daughter, Annika, and his ex-wife, Natasha. I, I, I don't. Just then, a white flash and a fusillade of barking interrupted them. The next moment, Luke beheld Freya standing before them, dressed in a t-shirt and capris, but wielding a four-foot-long fullered blade of glimmering Damascus steel. Shelby, coiled at her feet, snarled at the vatier. Who dares to kidnap my... Wait, Luke shouted. It's okay. I'm okay. Really. A moment passed before Freya's body finally relaxed. She lifted the sword over her shoulder 
and the blade disappeared into an unseen sheath on her back. As her hand released it, the hilt too disappeared. Looking up at the goddess, Shelby flopped to the ground in a sploot and began peacefully panting. Vanadis, Brona stated without surprise. I was wondering if and when you would come for him. Brona, Freya began, recognizing and acknowledgeing the council. Bjornfirth, Ethelwald, Hjodin, Egolith, and Mishike, Freya Vanadis, queen of the gods, greets you. But she demands to know why the council has brought this mortal here. To see if he is more than just another of your paramours, Brona shot back. Brona forgets our manners, the tall Bigfoot soothed. Your Highness, the Council needs the mortal Luke Miller to make a decision free from your divine influence. Thank you, Rodwin, for your swift clarification, the goddess replied. But I agree with Brona that, under the circumstances... We should forego decorum for the sake of brevity. Now, you need a decision about what, precisely. The council filled her in on the details of the impending apocalypse at the hands of an ancient dragon. Oh, dear. I see, Freya pronounced in a deadpan voice when the story had finished. But why must his choice be made away from me? Because, Brona spoke up again, if he is being manipulated by your magic, he cannot help us. We are certain that you cannot help us, Vanadis, for your lust for war has blinded you to how horribly it has ravaged this world. This long century of war has left you with few friends among the Vatier. Am I not also the goddess of love and of fertility? Mm, you are... Brona spat back, and as such you doubly plunder our planet with overpopulation. Might I remind Brona, Freya replied with percussive sternness, that for humans to possess free will they must be able to make and accept the consequences of their own actions. They must be free to choose, to wage war or to make love. I myself cannot interfere. And yet here you are, Brona stated condescendingly, interfering with Luke's decision-making. Luke felt like a kid, overhearing his parents discussing his problems at school, small and insignificant, and yet a massive source of unhappiness. Freya, please, he interjected timidly. The goddess turned. Yes, Luke? Look, of all the detective agencies in the Twin Cities, why did you walk into mine last fall? Uh, well, she began gently, I... Freeze! A voice commanded from the tree line in a sharp, authoritative bark. You are trespassing on the private property of the friendly Fairright Company, and we have you surrounded. Put your hands up! Camouflaged figures crashed through the evergreens from all sides and poured into the grotto. Their dark, tactical, camouflaged clothing rendered them as shadows, except for dozens of green dots glowing from their night vision goggles and rifle scopes. Luke wondered why none of the mercenaries reacted to the five Sasquatches standing behind him in the center of the clearing, but when he glanced over his shoulder, the council was gone. 
Now he knew why no one had ever killed or captured a Bigfoot. Hands up, the voice shouted again. We're coming down there. As they complied, Freya whispered, I'll get us out of here. Just wait for my signal. The goddess began to murmur in unfamiliar phenomes. A breeze started to swirl around their feet. The moon dimmed. The soldiers paused. But then Luke heard a crack and saw Freya slam to the ground as though she'd been tackled. The moon brightened and the breeze stopped as her magical focus was broken. The goddess rolled around, punching and kicking some sort of creature. Luke couldn't make it out. Shelby bounded alongside her, scratching and barking at the foe. Hey, I think she's having some kind of seizure, one of the soldiers mistakenly called out as the squad quickly closed in. Gloved hands grabbed Luke's arms and cuffed them behind his back before he could resist. A pair of guards approached Freya, but she heaved the struggling thing at them like a squirming sack of potatoes. At the moment of impact, it became visible, and Luke got a good look at what seemed to be a Bigfoot, but smaller and deformed. Its fur appeared as though all the color had been drained from it, leaving it sickly and pale and greasy. Its eyes glowed a fierce red, and its fangs dripped yellow mucus. Knocking the guards to the ground, the vicious creature sprung up, looked around, hissed like a viper, and brandished a twisted, rusty blade in its claws. As it did so, several dozen identical monsters materialized out of the blackness, screaming and screeching blood-curdling cries. What the fu- A soldier on the other end of the grotto exclaimed as a mob of monsters descended upon him. His voice trailed off in a desperate choking sound as the creatures split his chest with sawtooth dirks. Skookums! Luke whispered in shock as the frantic kapa 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 of discharging assault rifles and shouted orders filled the grotto. They're everywhere! A soldier yelled, releasing a rapid staccato of bullets into a beast leaping at him. The monster howled as it died, disintegrating into ash-like dust before it even hit the ground. They've grabbed the girl! A different mercenary shouted. Luke turned to see Freya, a monster on each bicep, attempting to drag her into the forest. However, the sinews in her arms tensed, and she yanked both skookums off their feet and slammed them together in front of her, their jagged halberds clattering to the stony ground. As the creature stumbled, reeling from the unexpected impact, she reached behind her back and pulled out a black cloth. In a split second, she fastened what appeared to be a cloak made from ebony feathers around her shoulders and redrew her sword. As the Skookums regained their bearings, they took up their weapons and went for her. Instead of taking them head on, the goddess shot straight into the air, flew behind them, and sliced their heads off. Their bodies crumpled and melted away like cotton candy splashed with water. From the vantage point granted to her by the flying falcon feather cloak, Freya spotted Luke and launched herself towards him. Before she could close the gap, however, three skookums riding massive vultures zoomed into the grotto and intercepted her. She sliced the first one in half, but the two behind it used its disintegration as a distraction and passed a corroded chain between them. 
they closed in and clotheslined the goddess, flinging her hard to the ground. As Freya slammed into the rocks, Luke spotted Shelby frantically bouncing towards the goddess, a scythe-like skookum sword clasped in her jaws, its owner hissing in hot pursuit. Meanwhile, the battle wasn't going any better for the human soldiers in the grotto. Despite the firepower of what appeared to be full BR-15 assault rifles, the security team was outnumbered by the Skookums 3 to 1, and the beasts seemed to react ten times quicker than even the fastest soldier. Several were slaughtered simply because they could not reload rapidly enough, and as if the Skookums' horrifying appearance and brutal tactics weren't sufficiently terrifying, a brace of the creatures began to eagerly devour the dead and wounded further disheartening the embattled survivors. I've got the guy, the man holding Luke's belt screamed, pulling him out of the fray. A second later, however, a pale beast tore open the soldier's throat with its fangs. Once free, Luke stumbled towards Freya, but another guard clamped his arms and dragged him towards the trees before he could reach her. Before they made it to the tree line, however, another skookum separated the soldier's arm from his torso with its axe. As the monster fell upon the unfortunate mercenary and finished him off with its claws, Luke beheld a disheveled Freya again take flight, a blood-soaked skookum skewered on her sword. Shelby barked somewhere out of sight, but before Luke could make it three full steps towards them, he was apprehended for a third and final time. Forget the girl! She's one of them! His new captor hollered. Let's get out of here! The woman must have been the commanding officer, as the remaining soldiers quickly followed her lead and retreated from the grotto, firing several hundred more rounds to cover their escape. Intense silence, broken only by an occasional cracking branch or rustling leaf, the remaining tatters of the Mostat team, with Luke in tow, moved piecemeal through the forest. Luke tried to break free as they carried him deeper and deeper into the dark woods, but handcuffs made moving alone in the dense brush impossible. Suddenly, a man screamed in agony, a single gunshot echoing among the trees. Samick? Another soldier shouted anxiously. Samick? The voice vanished, followed only by a momentary whimper and a gurgling sound. Jeff? Shh! silenced several human voices. Frightened, the soldier, now holding Luke's arms, involuntarily released him, but Luke stayed put. If heavily armed soldiers were getting picked off by the Skookums, he stood no chance on his own, especially in handcuffs. Even with the guards on his side, he severely doubted that any of them could make it out of the forest alive. If Shelby was lucky, she alone might be the only mortal able to outrun the monsters long enough for them to lose interest. He hung his head. The faint sliver of hope that Freya would rescue her consort dramatically dimmed in his mind. In the ten or so minutes that followed, the surviving soldiers found each other in the darkness. They clumped together in a tight ring around Luke, like muscles on a rock, their rifle barrels bristling in every direction. Stick together. The woman in charge whispered almost inaudibly, We'll all be dessert before we make it back to HQ.
the skookum squawked, damning Freya in Anglo-Saxon as she skewered him with her sword. After another screech, he went limp and disintegrated. The other skookums shrieked similar curses in a dozen defunct languages before vanishing into the ether, their job of creating chaos complete. Luke, Freya cried, looking around. Seeing nothing, she stowed her cloak and sword and sprinted back to the grotto. She burst through the tree line, but halted when she saw Brona in the center of the clearing. They took him, the Vatir elder spoke stoically. All right, Freya resolved. If we move quickly, we might be able to intercept them before they reach the mine. Brona, you know these woods better than anyone. Will you act as our guide? No. No? The goddess fumed with incredulity. No, Brona reiterated sadly. It is clear that Luke cannot help us, Vanadis. I can waste no more time. Dragach will emerge soon, and the Vatir must prepare to meet him. If you wish to catch Luke, head east to the lake and then north. That is all I can do. Farewell. With her goodbye, Brona faded suddenly from sight. You can't just... Freya began, before realizing that she was the only one speaking into the wind. Come on, Shelby declared with doggish enthusiasm. We don't need her. Soldiers and the Luke, I can smell them. They're around here somewhere, I can smell them. You're right, Freya agreed with a faint smile, and I can follow their footprints. Let's go, Shelby. Little over half an hour ago, Boss Mostat found two people and their dog in Gunderson's Grotto. You know, that caved-in copper mine from the 1880s? Mac explained to Rich as their steel-toed boots clamped down the void of Mineshaft E. The little man hesitated. His tone grew frantic, but five minutes later something went, uh, wrong. What? Rich abruptly halted his stride. Wrong how? Uh, we don't know, Mac replied with exasperation, pausing just in front of Rich and turning to face him directly. Captain Peterson called in and they were being attacked by a pack of unknown creatures with multiple casualties. Creatures? What sort of creatures? And how many casualties? Injured? Killed both. Rich fired his questions in rapid succession, his volume increasing with each addition. I don't know, Mac answered again in frustration. We've had no contact since. So what's your plan? Rich demanded, anxious and irritated. Don't worry, I've got an ad hoc team of building security out there looking for him, Mac responded, with as much resolution as he could muster. I suppose that's the best we can do till dawn. Rich fumed in reply. He resumed walking, stepping past Mac as though his colleague didn't exist. Keep me posted, he growled, as if we didn't have enough problems already. Yeah. Mac hurried after him, the percussive echo of their footsteps following them like phantom drums from some long-forgotten battle. Nearing the terminus of the tunnel, they shuffled around the sooty yellow behemoth of an excavator silenced by the work stoppage. On the other side, they beheld Dr. Delvaux. 
He stood with a weather-beaten doctor's bag open on the stone floor next to him, a large leather-bound book balanced upon his left hand while his right caressed the gray, slick rock face. Geswefe, Traka, Eldgefa, he muttered. What language is that? Rich interrupted. Pestolrekren, Huingen, Inan, the doctor finished, momentarily ignoring the question. Anglo-Saxon, he replied when he was done, turning to face the men. What's it mean? Mac pressed. Sleep in peace, ancient foe, he translated. Remain in your tomb. You, uh, singing the earthquake a lullaby? Rich mocked, the security fiasco fresh in his mind, leaving little patience for the doctor's strange ritual. Of course not, the doctor replied definitely. I'm addressing the source of the earthquake. You said that you wanted my help, and if you meant it, please leave me to my what. Delvo was interrupted by a sudden, violent shaking of the tunnel. Fluorescent bulbs flared and then exploded. PA speakers hissed, squealed, and popped. Chunks of taconite crackled and then fell from the walls and ceilings. Scaffolding buckled and collapsed in a cloud of dust. In a few seconds, it was over. The tunnel fell silent and black as oblivion. Emergency lighting gradually flickered into life. The three men assist themselves for injuries, finding none. It's worse than I thought, Dr. Delvo pronounced gravely, his voice choked with soot. He's already awake. Well, listeners, that's tonight's story. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed reading it. Once again, you heard The Belligerent Bigfoot by D. Zane Davis, the third entry in the Luke Miller series. The audio for tonight's episode, as well as the text, were produced by me, Michael Strand, managing editor at Six Semper Serpent Books. Tonight's author was D. Zane Davis, a local English teacher, and the publisher of tonight's episode was T. Martin Kraus, editor-in-chief at Six Semper Serpent Books. And finally, the music tonight was provided by Jesse Spillane. Check out his music on the Free Music Archive. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for contributing on Patreon. We'll see you next time on the Everlasting Stories Podcast. Mm-hmm.